Where did you like to play as a child? I ask this question a lot because childhood memories shape us into the people we become. Welcome to Play It Forward, a worthy podcast. I'm your host, Lucas Ritson. Thanks so much for joining me. I talk a lot about play. I'm a dad, I'm a husband, I'm an educator, and I'm a playground designer. So I want to gather some of my favorite people who are advocates of children and nature and create a space to have an honest conversation about getting more kids outside. The power of play is very often underestimated and I think we all need a little more play in our lives. All right, welcome to another worthy podcast and play it forward. Um, I've got an amazing guest with us today. It's a treat. Um, One of the biggest advocates and the biggest action taker that I've ever come across. Um, We've got the amazing Kath Prisk um, all the way sitting up with a cup of tea after 10.30 at night is her dedication after a big day. Um, And she's got an amazing resume that anyone in the field would aspire for. Um, We've been a director of Play England, director of... um, the Play Projects, UK Pay um, Policy Manager, London Skills Manager, the list goes on. Also involved with the Wild Network, which I l- look forward to learning more about and a huge campaigner for the London Natural City Parks project or campaign, as you would call it, and we'll get into that as well. So um, a bit of backstory, I met Kath in the States at the Children and Nature Network conference. Um, We connected amazingly, um, heard about all the work and then through other people mentioning this amazing person, um, everyone holds Kath in such high esteem. So thank you so much for joining us on Play It Forward, Kath. No no pressure to live up to that one. Oh, thanks, Lucas. Yeah. Um, So... It was a great pleasure to meet you too. Oh, I'm like, stop I'm, it. you just have yeah, to say no, that I, after that intro, don't you? I do, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but it genuinely was. I remember we met and like couldn't stop talking. We think we chat, sat yeah, and like, chatted in that go big to the hall next for like an hour at this conference, yeah. or we're going to miss yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And then we're like, we could take over the world. <laughs> yeah, um, we will. It will happen. Amazing. I uh, forgot to mention as well. Um, outdoor people. It's your passion. Your yep. heart. Um, yep. And the advisor or committee decider on European Outdoor Gear Awards as well. <laughs> Could you be broader in what you do? But all advocacy for nature and getting all people outside. So absolutely amazing. That's it. Um, as yep. we start all podcasts, um, we start with a bit of a reflection question to ease into it. Um, so where did you play as a child, Kath? Right. I think this is this is very telling because I've thought about this a lot. We always do the play memory exercise whenever we start off um, any workshops and the like. But as a kid, we moved around a lot. So we moved about every two years. My dad was a water engineer. And um, in the school term time, you know, we were in um, Wales and then North Yorkshire. And then we moved to Liverpool. And then my dad got a job in Baghdad in Iraq. And in... At home in Liverpool, like total free range, you. Yeah. There was a housing estate being built round um, down the road from us, so we used to like break in and um, play on the houses being built. Um, we used to play in the waste ground, go up to there's a woodland. Um, it was the middle of Liverpool, 
like city but we just sort of walk to the ghost swimming pool and then go up to the little woodland and make dens you know just complete free range and then we were out in iraq in baghdad in 1982 and we wouldn't be allowed out of the compound so i had this complete mismatch of during term time total freedom like yeah it's just come home at night come home when you get hungry um and then in the holidays it was just me and my brother none of my mates and there were no other children there really not very often and um i would be on this compound and yeah you could just it was like a house for sort of seven blokes who were all engineers and you couldn't leave that unless you were sort of escorted to the british club where you played in the swimming pool but it was total not freedom and that really brought home to me how important that freedom was yeah just to to roam and like you know you, you to build up your kiss your your the space that's that is yours yeah yeah that's, and i think that contrast in any learning is so integral um for someone that's traveled extensively, I know personally yeah. to see those contrasts in the world and the experiences shared by children yeah. um, is so important. And, th- and that really stays with you because it really jumps yeah. out. You like push outside your bubble and then all of a sudden you're like, whoa, this isn't the re- my reality isn't necessarily yeah. the truth. That's absolutely right. The more you get to know how kids grow up in different countries, it's a very different world um you know a friend of mine moved to zurich in switzerland um 15 years ago and i remember she uh, messaged me about three weeks later and said you can't believe this um i've just got a letter from the school telling me that if my kids get seen being dropped off at school in a car everybody in the whole school gets a letter reminding them of the whole school policy that no child is allowed to be taken to school by an adult um <laughs> at the age of seven <laughs> Like, oh, that's brilliant. Oh, well, you imagine that now. Um, we had um, Madeline Avja on the um, podcast, a occupational mm-hmm. therapist, and she was saying she was heckled by fellow parents about letting her child ride four or five k's home after school. Yeah, um, and she was doing it from a physiology physiology standpoint, um, yeah. trying to get all that cortisol and everything out of his body um, yeah. after school. And but the parents were like, "It's irresponsible." So it's yep. just that framing once again. Oh, absolutely. I did an after-dinner talk um, at an outdoor trade show um, a few years ago. And one of the – like I was giving all the stats about the importance of kids playing outside and the importance of kids driving uh, – cycling themselves or walking to school. And there was a guy at the back who's clearly getting more and more agitated and more and more angry. And at the end, I was like, you know, any questions, like anybody got any stories they want to share? And he's like, I'm a big mountain biker. My kid rides in competitions for mountain bikes. When he was eight, he wanted to cycle to and from school. And um, we there was no major roads to cross. I cycled with him a couple of times. They're like, yeah, fine. You know, you go ahead. And two days later, the police knocked on his door. And said, yeah, yeah, we've been told that, you know, neglect. And he got had to go through all this, all this rigmarole with social services to prove oh, that he no. wasn't a neglectful parent. And you just like, and he said, like, I really want my kid to cycle to school, but I don't want to go through that. And it's something that really comes home to me a lot, working with families from lots of different circumstances, 
it's hard enough for the middle class families with advocacy, the families who really feel they can stand up for themselves and go, no, I know this is what my children need. But any families who feel you know, they don't want social services to be coming knocking on their door at all, actually. And it, there's even more barriers to them getting out and being able to walk to, to and from school. Um, what are those barriers, you think? in your expertise of working all across the world? Um, we've done, oh, I, I've seen so many surveys now over the last 15, and 20 years. And to tie years. another question yeah. I was thinking about, yeah. you can tie into those favourite stats you mentioned about doing that after-dinner talk as well. <laughs> Good place to start. Yeah, well, my favourite stat at the moment, um, so outdoor people I set up, um, five years ago, six years ago in February. Actually. Oh, Congrats. Coming up be ne next week will be six, six, six well years. How exciting. Um, and Outdoor People, our foundational statistic is 25% of London's kids get to a park once, less than once a month. There's about six or seven percent, um, about 6.5% don't get to green spaces ever ever and in london and london is it may be like one of the world's bigger you know big urban city but we have nearly 50 percent is green space yeah um, people don't get that, uh, green do and blue space yeah look at a big map of london it's covered in parks every single child in london lives within 15 minutes walk of a green space um of a park or a you know a, somewhere that they could run around and play and yet you walk through those parks and they're empty so that's one of my favourite stats, and that why is it? What's what's changed in the last fifty years? Yeah, exactly. It's to funny stop when you go kids into getting outside. That yeah. modern urban planning, and everyone's like, we've got to do like transition spaces, and we've got to create green spaces, yeah. like reinvent the wheel. And you look at a mega beast of London, and it's all there, yeah. and it was the original way it yeah. was. What do you think yeah. made that happen? Like. It was happening um, before. And this is the thing we reoccur. Yeah. People say, well, it was happening before and it's not happening now. But is this just a trend yeah. that's going to cycle out again? What's your thoughts on that? Do you know, do you know what I was um, prepping when I was prepping for today? I just realized I'm, I'm, when I was prepping for today, I was looking at Hugh Cunningham's History of Childhood. Um, and I've just misplaced the the quote I wanted to read out from him because it just was so beautiful um, that he said, this is, there it is, um, perhaps no other generation of adults has been so conscious of the vulnerability of children, wow. of their exposure to risk. They're so conscious of their exposure to risk. Statistically, we know that the dangers of deaths are no higher than in the past. In fact, they're in many ways, children are much safer, but that's not how it's perceived. The cost of maintaining the ideal of the happy child is high, not so much in monetary terms as in the protective barriers with which we surround our children, perhaps thereby reducing their chances of happiness. And it's this generation of adults, this generation, yet they are so conscious of how vulnerable their children were are in a way that, you know, I was born in 1970. I grew up in the 70s. In a way, my parents certainly were not conscious of the vulnerability of letting their um, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds um, just play outside in a housing estate in Liverpool. Um, and their parents, you know, my dad 
took two bus rides to school every day and um, started cycling himself to be in the Surf Life Saving Club in, in on the north coast of Cornwall, which is about 10 miles away from the age of, sort of 12. Um, the key barriers now are a lot of it's in people's heads. It's perceptions of fear of, of strangers, um, fear of um, traffic. That's a very real fear. But it is being addressed in many places. I mean, I believe traffic in London now is about as fast as it was in the 19th century in lots of places. But it, traffic is a big, big barrier. Um, fear of weather. Fear of weather comes out in the top two or three in the world in everything. In fact, we did a, a research report um, called Muddy Hands and Dirty Faces, from Muddy Hands to Dirty Fa and Dirty Faces to Higher Grades and Happy Places um, to... Uh, about 18 months ago for Outdoor Classroom Day. So I did this big literature review on what are the barriers to getting outside and what is the, um, what, what, why is it that it's so important that kids get outside? And I asked 4,000 teachers, what stops you getting outside? And weather came up and number two or three in everywhere in the world. But what counts as weather was so different. And I love this, that in Florida, they were saying they can't let the kids go out to play at playtime at school if it gets down to two degrees or there is a chance it might rain. Whereas in Canada, they said if the hailstones are bigger than their heads. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag risky play. <laughs> exactly. Dodging yes. those, and in fact, that it made me think of it when I've seen the photographs about Canberra recently. And the the uh, the, the, the my my best mate is uh, with her two year old in Canberra now, and like I saw the photographs of the the hailstones in Canberra, and I was like, whoa, do not let that two year old outside now. <laughs> no, no chance. Isn't that interesting? I've, I've used that um, weather challenge because it always comes up. What about weather? What about weather? And, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, we don't have the rain. Well, we do actually. We've got proper English weather. We've had rain for like a week straight. Um, really? Yeah, it's phenomenal. We've gone from drought to flooding um, as oh, Australia gosh. does. Um, but yeah. we have the challenges yeah. like rain, not an issue a lot of the time, but we have yeah. to deal with the heat. But sun. But yeah. Sun, yeah. And then it's just like yeah. everyone's got their challenges, but what are we prioritising? Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and it's do what are you doing about it? And are you grow letting kids grow up? in the culture they live in they grow they live in and are you letting them grow up to understand and feel have a, a an, in, an internal intrinsic grasp of the kind of climate that they live in or are you totally protecting them we do not all live in the south of spain where it's like 14 to 24 degrees all year round and just nice yeah. it's you know, some places are extreme cold. Some places are extreme heat. I, like I said at the beginning, I, I lived in Iraq um, yeah. from 1981 until 1989, like in, just in the summer holidays and Easter holidays. But in summer holidays, it was up to 50 degrees. Yeah. You don't think that the local kids were, like, not playing outside. Of course they were. Yeah. And they um, – but – it, you you adapt to it. You play from six a.m. until ten or eleven. Then you're inside. Yep. You, lots of greening, lots of um, lots and lots of plants everywhere. Yep. So it's nice, cool, shady, planted places. You, yep. 
yeah, of course, you don't want your kids to be going out into a playground that is a large swathe of black black top um, tarmac um, when it's 40 degrees and there's nothing to protect them. No way. But if you have the same school and it has trees and bushes and lots of shady shade sails and it's structured so that the wind comes through, suddenly you've got a place and you think about the school timing. Schools start really early in places that are really hot, yeah. and like yeah, you do do it like that. And at weekends, you just play out before school. You yeah, don't. It's a matter of like prioritizing our own beliefs over what is actually the truth. Um, you Absolutely. Briefly, there. Um, what role does culture play in yep. getting children outdoors, or how important? What re- what does that relationship look like, and the importance of it? I think culture plays a huge role. Um, it's one thing we've seen without a classroom day is in a lot of countries, it, how important is playing outdoors to um, a human being, whether they're sat in Finland, in Canberra, in um, Johannesburg, in New York, in London, in Mumbai, what cultural value they put on playing outdoors is is something that that really comes home to you when they say. So we asked everybody, like, how important do you think it is that children are outside? And somewhere between eighty to ninety percent of all teachers that we asked in a survey of four thousand said um, uh, playing outside is extremely important for children's health and well being. But how important do they think it actually is for them to be outside? That's very different. You know, maths homework always trumps it. You know, children shouldn't be getting dirty. The children that play outside are clearly feral. Um, There are views that are held in different parts of the world that just why? That's so, yeah. One of the things that I, I keep coming back to is, one of the change we as play advocates, as outdoors advocates, people that say that kids should just simply be outdoors more for all the reasons we know, because they'll be healthier, they'll be happier, they'll care more about the climate in the future, they'll just like have more opportunity to for, for self-growth. Why should but that doesn't feel as important to community planners to schools to parents as reading to their children at night as making sure they get enough sleep as making sure they have a healthy diet Mm. um one of the things i i think all of us are trying to do that are advocating for kids time outdoors is just make it as culturally um high priority as those reading to your children at night you know we are good citizens if we facilitate a world where we expect children to be playing in the pocket parks at the end of every street and on the pavements and running up and down yeah Um, yeah when from someone that's been involved with like director of play england and policy how do we steer this ship in that direction because there is this like seems to be this embedded idea that other things are priority. So what steps do you think need to be taken? Okay. I 
would say think global, act local, or think national, act local. Um, the key, key steps policy-wise, um, Wales, obviously, leading the world uh, with having a um, general uh, a, a, a fundamental policy that says that um, children have should have sufficient play. Yeah. You know, they're still figuring out exactly what sufficient means, but because they have to have sufficient play. That's a they're part of their least, play charter, isn't it? It's part of the play charter, it's, yeah, they're required to offer sufficient play opportunity. Every local authority is required to offer sufficient play opportunity. And that's great. Um, Australia, you know, believe me, when I do the comparisons of how much time for play children are given, you come out the top uh, in the world. Yeah. Um, you maybe may beaten by Finland, <laughs> but yeah. um, um, but still, it's it, policy-wise. I want to see policies that say that every child should walk to and from school, because from that policy gets children and parents expecting communities expecting kids to be outside or normally acting local. Acting local. I want to see. Interventions that support the whole family. So outdoor people, we set up to tackle this 25% of London's kids get to a green space less than once a month. Um, and we, we set out to work with families who are those families, who are great families. They love their kids. They want their kids the best for their kids. And they take them once a month also for a little special ex excursion to the park. So we take them for a short camping experience, have them all talk to each other, chat about, like, experience what it's like to let their kids play outside of their site, quite often for yeah. the very first time. Um, they talk to it, and we encourage them to talk. We don't tell them what to do, but we encourage them to talk about play. We just maybe drop it in there or say, oh, isn't that great? You know, and just listen to the changing tone in the conversation as over the three days we take them camping. Um, they go from just sheer terror that their kids are out of their sight to saying, that's the first time I've seen him make a friend without me introducing them. Yeah. Um, it's the first time I've seen my kid just not needing me to help them, not needing me because we're in the middle of a woodland. And so the kids just just play and they've never seen that children can do that. They think they are responsible for entertaining their children at all times. And they realize the joy of the just constant play. And then when we come back, we take them on what we call wild walks, adventures for children to take their parents on. And we do that once a month and get the parent and that builds up a community because a lot of people just think that if I let my kids play outside, people will shout at me. People will disapprove of me. People will think that I'm a bad parent. We try and build that community back in. So we bring the parents that have come, the families that have come on camping and invite, ask them to invite their friends, their neighbours. And we take them on a wild walk. Um, and it's just to be, you know, we're, we're in Hackney in East London, so it'll be to um, Haggerston Park, to a city farm, to it'll be local parks, Victoria Park, Mile End Park, Hackney Marshes. We did a big expedition to Hampstead Heath. It's like six stops on the train, but yeah. hardly any of them had ever been there before. Um, it's, and that building of a community that then 
support each other and then we support them to become volunteers and to lead walks themselves yeah because it's not for me to tell people how to change their lives what i just try and do is is is, is provide prov- make some spaces where they can choose is this something I want to do more of? You know, I see my kid is sleeping better, eating better. They're making friends with kids they wouldn't have met otherwise. I'm making some friends. Oh, my goodness, I feel so much better because I've had 20 minutes, a couple of hours in a park, breathing some slightly cleaner air, um, (laughs) maybe sharing a cup of tea with somebody I haven't met before, but we can talk about how difficult it is. Um, yeah, we outdoor people we make sure we have some um, waterproofs so if the kids don't have a raincoat because a lot of kids don't. Yeah. A lot of mums don't have a raincoat. A lot of dads don't have a raincoat. So we find them like cheap or free um, rain gear if they need it, and we just try and inspire, provide you know, the opportunity to get involved. And we've had so many of the parents now saying to us, just. I just didn't realize how important it was. Yeah. And through having the opportunity to just get outside every week, uh, every every couple of weeks with these new friends, then now they've changed their behavior. So they're making sure that after school every day, the kids get at least 10 minutes, 15 minutes to have a run around in a green space. Yeah. And they're telling me, obviously, that you know, the difference is, in those kids' everyday lived experience, they're making more friends, they're healthier, they are happier. Um, they come home and they're ready to eat their tea and they're ready to do their homework then if they've yeah. got homework to do. Um, and then they sleep better at night and that just makes everybody less stressed. Yeah. And it's So it's this think global, think national. Yeah, and that rolls into the community. It makes the community a nicer place to be. Places where kids play out are safer. There's a... Brilliant woman who lives near me called Dinah Bornat, who wrote, um, did some research on estates, mm-hmm. uh, particularly looking at Hackney estates. But like the, she's also looked at estates. She's an architect, and she's looked at estates across the UK. And looking at what initially she started out saying, what kind of like physical planning structure should be there so that kids play out more yeah. on the kind of low income estates? Uh, what, what, what should be there to make them play out more? And one of the conclusions she came to was that where you have the conditions for good outdoor play, yeah. where um, houses overlook a shared space, which is safe and that, parents feel happy for the kids to be out there playing yeah. where there are little signs that uh, suggest that this is a playful space and yeah there isn't a no ball game sign that's covered up no, not there yeah, and instead there is, oh, I, I made a full yeah. library of them when i was over in london everyone i saw i took a photo of and it's like i've got yeah. a full catalogue of like all these random places where it says no ball games there's places where it's like two square meters and there's a sign <laughs> yeah. no ball games and you're like where would you yeah. do it anyway why would you do? I say, and I, I always think I always want to put like a massive truckload of sand just straight underneath them. Yeah. Go <laughs> so, like no ball games does not mean no children are allowed to play here because yeah. that's that's what no ball game signs do. Yeah. No, no ball game signs no say no fun allowed, no playing, no yeah. dressing up, no chalking, no standing around talking to your mates. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's at the end of the street here, there is a tiny little playground. I walk past every day. There is never a kid in that playground, never one, because there's a massive no ball game sign over the playground. Yeah. Yeah. No kids sign. It's just yeah. No kids. That's the opposite of the community um community built park that you sent me to out of happening yes. with the um serpent. That was amazing. Mm. It was torrential rain. It was bucketing down. <laughs> puddles and everything but there was so many families in that part because it was actually community built and it was a part of their community it's amazing yeah haggerston yeah that was such a lovely it got refurbished um with the community oh gosh as part of the playing england pathfinder play builder program um about 10 2009 2010 so the the snake was built by the community like back in the 70s so they locally it's called snake park and then it got refurbished by working with the community big community consultation and yeah it's used whatever the weather all year round it's got a little bit of everything one of the things i love in that park is at the back of it they they have a fence around it to stop dogs getting in um but the back, the fence is made really low, so you can jump over it. Yeah, just, perfect. Just a really little nice stuff. little feature. Yeah. Um, I think I will um, – I'll, I'll do a little um, slide on Instagram on awesome. Lucas Ritz, Ritz and Official. I'll, I'll put some photos up of that um, so people know what we're talking about. Um, that would be One great. thing I didn't mention that we've referenced quite a bit, and I didn't mention it because the rap sheet – your rap sheet's quite long um, – <laughs> Um, was outdoor classroom. I was a day. teacher as well. Yeah, you were I, a teacher. You know, I started um, life as a teacher, love, and hence outdoor yeah, classroom deputy day. Head yeah, of two children's centres. Yeah, yeah, you've been looking at my LinkedIn. Oh yes, <laughs> indeed. Um, and I was just had to keep scrolling. But one thing we've mentioned yeah. is outdoor classroom day, and I know yeah. a lot of our listeners have registered, have. Um, being engaged with it, also use the resources. Obviously, Nature Play Queensland that I'm involved with are huge supporters of it um, and and see the benefits of it every – all through the year. Like we're we're seeing through Outdoor Classroom Day, teachers really take that shift and be – like that experience of the um, parent taking that step into the parklands and having this revelation saying, wow, like I didn't realise that – what this would do for me as well because it's this paralysis of analysis. But we've seen that those teachers take that leap and say, hey, that child with the behavioural issues that we weren't going to let come and do outdoor classroom day, um, all of a sudden they're interacting and playing down and actually we just need to offer that to him more. Like there's so many stories and so many um, testimonials from the children coming through that as well. Yeah. Um, so yeah. how did um, Outdoor Classroom Day begin? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. It was not – I did not found it. I'm like – I. it was founded by the most amazing woman called Anna Porch yep. who – it was actually – I. Uh, um, I can, I've got space to do a little bit of a longer one than just to say founded in 2012 with a handful of schools to say there was a piece of research done by Tim Gill, who you might yep. have heard of. He's a, a world expert in risk and managing risk in play. Um, did a report called Sowing the Seeds that was specifically looking at London at how many children 
uh, how do we create nature guardians for the future? How do we create kids who care about the environment? Yeah. And he did a piece of proper research, academic verified research got published in an academic paper showing that children who play outdoors are are more likely to care about the environment than those that just get outdoor learning. Yep. Anyway, you know the at the launch, it's called Sowing the Seeds. Sowing the Seeds. We'll put that in our show notes. In the show the notes, Excellent. please. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a really it's a good report. But at the launch of that report at City Hall in London, um, Anna and uh, a bunch of other people were looking at the statistics, one of which showed that Children in London um, do not think that their teachers introduce them to the outdoors. Mm. I think it was less than 7% of kids were identifying school as somewhere that took them to the outdoors. And they were kind of justifiably horrified about this because they all worked in the eco schools and school gardens and got kids outdoors at schools. There's lots of schools in London that do get kids outdoors. And they were like, well, we should have a day to celebrate all the great stuff that schools do Acton to local. get kids outside. We're make a yeah, local. Act local. <laughs> Absolutely. At local, get outdoors. Um, and so she said, right, let's, uh, I mean, they, they, they brainstormed it out, but there was a bunch of organisations involved, um, including Project Dirt, and who supported get, building the website for the little baby campaign, a couple of other organisations. Anyway, Anna came up with the name Empty Classroom Day. So they started this campaign, Empty Classroom Day. It was like, empty your classrooms, get them outside, celebrate what you do. Started with a couple of, about seven or eight schools, I think she said, in Croydon in South London. Yeah. Uh, the next year, there was like 30, 50 schools got involved, totally word of mouth. The next year, there was a couple of hundred. Um, the next year, so in 2015, there was about 100,000 kids in nine countries. There was some schools in Phenomenal. Pakistan, some schools, just through word of mouth. It was yeah. all... So it's on Facebook, no money behind Facebook ads or anything, just teachers telling teachers. At that point, um, it was all volunteers, and they were like, sorry, yeah, this is great, but it, it's too much work. Um, we can't just – we can't keep growing this. And um, Project Dirt happened to be going in to meet um, uh, with um, – Dirt is good, which is the, the the Unilever brand make washing powder, Omo in yeah. in Australia, and they w went in like saying, you know, is there any way you could give us a few thousand to help us keep this this campaign going in the UK? And they went, actually, this sounds like quite. This is a great campaign. We want kids to be outdoors. You get kids outdoors, and they sponsored us to make it global. So. We are very grateful for the money because what that has meant is we could employ a team in the UK, but it also meant that we could then uh, work with NGOs in um, our, in um, Brazil, India. I'm going to just like uh, just India, um, Australia, of course, yeah. um, Indonesia, Portugal, France, Spain, the UK, Finland, South Africa, Vietnam, Turkey and um, Thailand and we've developed so we've developed the website in Thai and Vietnamese and in Indonesian in Spanish and in Portuguese and in, in Argentinian Spanish um, 
So in 2016, we reached a million children. So that's when it, when it was going global. I just set up Outdoor People the year before. I met Nick, who set up Project Dirt, and would like we had been talking to Omo about growing this campaign. And he said, "I need somebody who can make a big campaign." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah I can help." And um, so I came on board and we planned out how to make it really big, how to take to really help teachers get to know about the campaign so more teachers can tell more teachers. Um, In 2017, when we did the evaluation, I think we had 22% of schools said since they've got involved in the campaign, um, they've increased outdoor playtime at school and 40% 40 said they've increased outdoor learning. We just crunched the numbers for 2019 and we're now at 52 percent of 52. all the teachers 52 percent wow. of the schools that have got involved in the that responded to the survey yeah um have got involved in since they got involved in the campaign have increased time for play at their schools since getting involved yeah um can you imagine that on the children now, that aren't having that their one visit to a park a, a month yeah and and in australia we're like with the screen time we're our I see our big challenge is weekend activity time is our organised sport. Yeah. Because um, whereas and it comes into a, our previous conversation around culture, culture is sport yeah. in Australia. So um, that that's a real hindrance. But if that's one opportunity for that free intrinsic play, and the teachers are coming back and saying we're activating it more, is just well yeah. done to you and the team. Love it. Absolutely, and well done to the teams locally. I mean, nature play. Queensland, Nature Play WA, all yeah. the teams that they're working with, you have done an amazing job. So I went and checked out how many kids there are in Australia, and I checked out how many kids got involved last year. Seven, Over 7% of all primary school kids yeah. across Australia got involved in the campaign in 2019. That's amazing. I want to see, obviously, 100% getting yeah. involved, not because – not because I just want the campaign to get huge, but because I want every school to value the great outdoors just outside their own front door and how important that is. There are very few schools in Australia that don't have some sort of access to outdoor space. Yeah, 100%. It blows me away when being in England, seeing a huge school and then what doubles as a car park in the morning is actually the playground and I'm just like, whoa, that's a huge. So I know a lot of people can dismiss it and say, well, you know, England and London's different to Australia, but we're facing the same challenges. If it's a perceived risk or an actual risk, availability to space, access to space with children in London, they don't have the physical space connected to their schools. But equally, I think in Australia, due to our sun and heat and yeah. it's still it's still not allowing the children the access so it's the same challenge yeah. just in a different yeah. costume yeah yeah well i was uh, chatting to the, the the campaign leads in south africa yesterday and they were saying you know one of the big challenges they face in south africa and she was saying you know it's not like uk you know we you know, we don't want our children to a lot of people don't want their children to go outside because it's too hot yeah. and i'm like yeah the campaign runs in saudi arabia 
and in um you know we we have it, one of the things if you go everybody outdoorclassroomday.com is the global site outdoorclassroomday.com.au is the australia site you can go on and you can click on the map and you can make it big and i love playing the game of uh find the primary school in the little tiny fiji islands yeah. and in samoa and in you Sorry, it's like I, I can I can go off on a tangent. So looking looking at no, the it gets me so excited to see these little. You know, we in Indonesia, I met the Minister for Children and Women's Empowerment, a wonderful woman called Dr. Lenny Lenny Roslin, um, at a conference a couple of years ago. Just like I met you, Lucas, and um, we started chatting, and she has been working with the Indonesian president on child-friendly cities for yeah. a number of years. She got very excited about the campaign, so we set up the Indonesian page, and she took it over and supported a little tiny NGO to have, and we had one million children in Indonesia got involved in 2018. And then last That's year incredible. they developed their own app. 36 out of 37 provinces in Indonesia got involved last year. Four and a half million kids yeah. Um, went outside, and they are targeting culture. The, the the president President Joko of Indonesia really wants to see schools making the most of the outdoor environment. Yeah. So they used Outdoor Classroom Day to push that message out there. But you know, as part of their Outdoor Classroom Day, they make sure all the kids practice um, uh, dealing with climate change disasters. Wow. So, and the first year they did that, I was like, oh, really? So they all kind of practiced what they would do if there was a tsunami or a volcano erupting or something. And then the next year, of course, there was a tsunami erupt yeah. uh, in, in, in particularly hit kids in Sulawesi. And we had four schools in Sulawesi, in the village that was most affected by the floods, by, by the tsunami, um, Pulau, I think it's called. They, those four schools got involved in Outdoor Classroom Day. They had no school left. The, end yeah. of the school had been washed away. But they saw they're rich in environment. They're rich in the outdoors. Yeah. You know, a school is not four walls. Yeah. A, a school is a teacher in a community, and uh, they come together. And... Yeah, it's. I think the Outdoor Classroom Day has really brought together a wonderful community. We did use the whole community. We uh, used the whole community worldwide to to run a, a a bit of a sort of fundraising for supporting um, Save the Children with with the Indonesian kids. So that was that was nice. But back to like how you wanted me to talk about how how it was developing how awesome you are Kath and you're doing it so oh. that's where we are and I'm happy with that and you're sharing amazing data and I think the biggest point there is you know we sometimes have um, we we think about the developing countries like Indonesia and we think mm. of well the association that they are outside but we've we can extend yeah. on the previous comment London minimal access yeah but to a physical space, Australia, plenty of physical space, but no affordance or yeah, like kind of blessing to go into that space. Yeah. And then yep. when you're Indonesia, it's like a, a different priority, but we're still facing yeah. these barriers. So that leads to my next question. Yeah. Um, top three barriers facing children internationally and getting them outside and why should we be doing it? 
two big questions. Two. Top three barriers. <laughs> you can dot point <laughs> it if you like. <laughs> yeah, I, I will do. I will do. So, so, yeah, the biggest barriers to getting outside are, um, I mean, it's kind of, it's permission. Permission, yeah. Access. Yeah. And making sure there's other kids out there once they get out there. Yeah. That could be a good like little motto. A big action takeaway from from the Play It Forward mm. podcast is, okay, just do your self-assessment. Is there space? And who needs yep. to give the responsibility? And equally, who else is joining this mission to get the children out there? And yep. it doesn't mean like um, it doesn't mean just in public spaces. Is that yeah. access your backyard? Is that the alleyway yeah. next to your flats? Like. And who is going to yeah. be that? What did you call it? A, gu- a guardian of nature? Yeah, a nature guardian. Nature guardian. Who's or what about to... this children guardian? Like giving yeah. them the affordance to have the experience they're honoured to have and that wonderment of being a child. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like how do we step back? Get, I always say our role is is to create, is to shape the spaces, to create the spaces, the opportunity for children to then like go into Wonderland, and that Wonderland could be just a bit of scrap ground. Um, yeah. It could be, you know, it's it's everyday adventures. Yeah. And then big adventures like in the holidays and the weekends. But everyday adventures. How do we get out of the way and make it accessible? Yeah. Um, for so that children. we make it every part of every day for all, all children. children. For all that children. individual, yeah. like what is wonderment for yeah. one child is not necessarily. Yeah. We're not saying get yeah. everyone in a park and everyone play together. We're just saying yeah. like, what excites and what honors that individual child yeah and i think there's i mean outdoor classroom day i want yeah you know, i we we work with the brilliant ngos around the world to push out that message that um playgrounds should be fantastic there is i'll do a plug for the international school grounds alliance conference in september coming up in sterling where the world's um like experts and teachers from all over the world will come together to look specifically talk about how do we make the school grounds amazing exciting places to be you know how do we make sure that those school grounds are green but are also like full of full of great stuff to play in because that's one of the ways you know one of the solutions to making sure they have more time outdoors stitching me up here do you know why i'm trying to ration (laughs) my travel this year and then you're just dropping Ah. stuff like that and i'm like oh i'm gonna have to go to that as well you oh that would be so great that would be so great you know one of the things i mean sorry i'm dotting around but policy wise one of the things i really want to point out is when we, one of the things that shocks me on the outdoor classroom day research is looking at the normal distribution curve around playtime. Yeah. If you asked every school, do you teach maths? They would say yes. Yeah. You ask school, do you take your kids out to learn every week? And the answer is a normal distribution curve that some people do it every day. Some people do it every week. And even in Australia, 20 percent of the schools who get involved in outdoor classroom day, schools who clearly care about the outdoors already, 20 percent were once a term or less. They go take lessons outdoors. The data don't lie, does it? The data doesn't lie. And that's it's. 
it, I want to see every government taking action that says, you know, you have to have high quality playtime and high quality outdoor learning. Um, alongside that, every community should be supporting families to get outside every day and telling them that, you know, just mass, massive media campaign telling people how important it is to be outside and that this is just something they should want to do. Do you think we've always undervalued the value of play for a child's yes. development and well-being or is it only a recent thing? No, we've always undervalued it. It's not something... <sighs> I mean, you know, Bruegel's paint the one famous painting, um, notwithstanding, you know, the painting that you see in a lot of play conferences, you can see this wonderful painting that's got um, about 40 different, you know, many different types of play types going on in the 17th century. Yeah. Sorry, that was like, I, that, that comes into my head because no, we've, we've, Play is not something we've – play is just something children do when they're told not being told what to do. Yeah. In fact, my, that's my favourite definition of play is like play is what I'm doing when you stop telling me what to do. It was a quote given to um, a colleague of mine, Michael Follett, once, and it's like – and I've used that Sums as my definition up, always. And But normally we've as, – as a human race – children we should be protecting them up to the age of three four five like really you know making sure they've got all the skills and the love and the the the, the confidence and the, the the capabilities to be able to deal with what they deal with the world around with them and then after that we've got to facilitate their entry into the world you know i want kids to we want kids to be climbing trees and um taking huge risks in their own play before they're teenagers and the hormones start racing and they start having to deal with the risks of, of being a teenager. Yeah. Um, I want kids to know how to deal with stress. That is the stress of like your mate, like having a big argument with you when you're a mile away from home or having to deal with um, your mate falling over and having um, twisted their ankle and having to think, what am I going to do about this and how are we going to get home or, to deal with those challenges when they're seven, eight, nine, yeah. and not wait till they're just starting the, to be, you know, they're 14 or 15 and having to sit like serious exams and they don't know how to cope. And then the girlfriend breaks up with them and then they like, they don't have the emotional resilience. This yeah. is play is always play is critically important for developing all these capabilities. And yet, no, we haven't always valued it that's one of the reasons i went back to the hugh cunningham book the history of childhood um yeah. is a history of children's right to play being taken away from them yeah and just an idea that came to me then was that do you think like we've always undervalued it but do mm. you think the determining thing that's changed it is our perception of children being so vulnerable we i think, think there's there's yeah i Absolutely. There, there, there are a couple of things there of like they're vulnerable, but they're also small adults that need to have be crammed into them. Everything's yeah. to protect them in the future. Yeah. It's the like you know, conflict between the um, they are capable, but our perception mm -hmm. is that they're vulnerable. <laughs> this yep. clash. Yeah. And what happens it's in the gap? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm constantly amazed about these when you hear about schools that um, ban running 
Yeah, we have two, yeah. three three secondary schools near me. Ban touching. You're not allowed to walk along with your girlfriend arm in arm. That that to me is child abuse. Yeah. Now, those sort of changes in rules don't happen overnight and they don't happen because teachers hate children they don't they love children they want the best for them but quite often we'll you know it's incremental over time you know children we all have less time well we perceive that we have less time now don't we it's it's like world seems to get more and more pressured and that that's pushed down on childhood so and it's also much more comfortable at home you know when i was a kid in the 1970s we only had three channels on the telly um central heating had only been around for 10 years at that point and wasn't necessarily something that was put on all the time it was expensive um and when my mum was a kid they didn't have heating you know coal fire (laughs) and toilet was outside but you know so you had to go out and play because it's much warmer if you're running around playing with your mates. Yeah. Um, what's changed has, yeah, people expect our, ex- we've become much more individ- individualistic as society as well, haven't we? Yeah. This, this, so we, we think that we're in charge of our children and nobody else should like have a say over them. So there's that kind of like, it that expectation that the village would look after them if they're out and about. Yeah. And we now, worry that that wouldn't be the case yeah the pro the protection effect as i like to call it yeah it comes into everything yeah um you touched yeah. on it briefly there um risk something we're huge advocates of Ooh. jointly so yeah what do you, what's your because i know you're a, you're a wealth of data and they're great little snippets <laughs> for people to be able to go and pass this information on so yeah. what's your favorite top bits of data around risk I know you've got some in there. <laughs> um, or favourite research? Favourite research, um, the, the sowing the seeds thing I, I mentioned before. Yeah. But um, the, oh, Mariana Brussoni, read everything she's ever written. Um, she wrote for the Canadian government, she wrote a, two big literature reviews on um, the importance of risk yeah. in childhood. And... So for me, risk is a is a quite a controversial word. Yeah. I try and get people to think about hazards. Yeah. Um, I have been schooled by obviously the by Tim Gill and other many other experts who are no far more knowledgeable than I am about what risk is. But if if you have one takeaway, it's like you know risks are great. Risks is risk. Be aware of risks. We want to take risks. If you didn't want to take risks, you'd never make a cup of tea. You know, the risk of boiling water and potentially <laughs> burning yourself. <laughs> but yeah, we want to manage the hazards away. You know, yeah. I don't want children running over broken glass or like, you know, actually dropping from great heights. But I want them to have the opportunity to take to have scary experiences. Yeah. Um, I once did. Uh, I, I I started doing some research on um, called dangerous play. Um, do helicopter ki- are helicopter kids more likely to get herpes? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the short answer was no. But um, I have I, I trigger, I, trigger uh, for the parent yeah. engagement there. You're like what? 
what do you say yeah yeah well that's <laughs> that, that is partly it i mean it's the you know what at what point do you allow children to take bigger risks the risk yeah. of going to the shop by themselves um of going with their friends and you know i started going with my mates to the local cities um uh nearby like 10 15 20 miles away to go to the cinema and stuff when i was what 12 13 we'd go and get the bus and oh, but stuff. you know and... it's more dangerous now <sighs> <sighs> yeah that's, that's my, my response trigger. as well that's your <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly um what excites you most about the developments in the world around supporting children getting them outside more what are you looking forward to most? Oh, do you know, I think there is a, there is a movement now. I think the, I feel we, we are, I hope we are getting towards a tipping point here. I think so. Um, with the focus on the environment. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's now so obvious what's yeah. going on with climate change. It's so obvious. And we know that if kids don't go outside, they don't connect to the environment and then no they're less likely to care for it. There's no relationship. Yeah, you, I mean, the wonderful David Attenborough said, you know, you only protect what you love and you only love what you know. Mm. Um, Nature for All, the global campaign Nature for All, they did a piece of research with the Children and Nature Network. Yeah. Um, really great. There's a really great summary highly recommend people take a, a scan of it it they boiled down um i mean that the reading list is huge but they boiled it down to one uh, very simple bit of advice if you want children to be nature guardians if you want children to care about the world outside the environment they need to be outside every day and they need to have adults who are inspirational and knowledgeable that they can look to for advice. Mm. Um, so it's not enough just to go and play underneath some trees. It's good to have an adult that will also go, ah, what kind of tree is that? Oh, maybe we can look that up yeah. um, as well and then have the everyday and often. Yeah. It's. I am excited that some countries are making a change, you know, to see the Western Australia um, government published the Outdoor Classroom Day Nature Passport yeah. last year. That was really exciting. Yeah. Um, the Scottish government, and I, I believe other yeah, that, that got distributed all over Australia. The Scottish government held a um, has has now put in place in a, a requirement that children should be able, able to play outside. Um, people are thinking about it. Yeah. But there needs a tipping point. We need yeah. a tipping point in our everyday cultures. Yeah. And the promising so thing about do that do. is, yeah. what is it? It's only mm. 10 or 20% of the whole that need to be doing mm -hmm. a practice for it to become a tipping point. So yes. don't become um, com like disheartened with the amount of people not doing it yeah. because we only need that 10 yeah. or 20% to do it and then we're going to have mass adaption of it. So that's, it. that's where that's it. you're doing such good work. You're contributing to that 10% like nobody's business. Um, um. I really feel and what's coming to me now is that we absolutely need to do a part two 
of this podcast because there's so much more notes uh, that I want to get into. Yeah, London National Park City. I didn't oh, talk about London that. London National Park oh, City. Give us a quick overview so to exciting. inspire some people right now before we wrap it up. Uh, it's so exciting. So London National Park City, London was declared the world's first national park city last it July. Here, Australia. <laughs> well, there was quite a lot of Australians in the audience when that was signed. So yeah. watch this space. Yeah. So tell us a bit about it. What does that mean? It means that um, it means for planning issues, people have to consider people's access to environment to to nature. It it doesn't stop people building houses, but they have to consider it. It means that we are encouraging every school, every organisation across London to think about how can we all get Londoners outside? How can we recognise the value of our blue spaces? Um, of our of our rivers and and lakes and the parks and the the great trees. Did you know we've got nine and a half million trees in London? That's yeah, we we could be classified as a forest. As well. and beautiful trees, some really ancient trees yeah. as well. So yeah, we are the National Park City. Um, we're about we're just training up a bunch of rangers who are going to help people explore the National Park City over the next few years. And we at Outdoor People, we're now facilitating a group to bring together all the organisations that support the schools with a snappy title of London National Park City Schools Network. Amazing. Um, so, so we want to find lots more easy ways to notice nature and to get outside every day. So inspirational. Um, thank you. I'm feeling inspired. I hope our listeners are. Um, we've got so much to cover in the next version because I'd love to speak to you again and get into that, get into it some more about this. But for our listeners, where can they find and continue to be inspired by um, what you're involved with? So please um, take a look at Outdoor People, outdoorpeople.org.uk. It is uh, more in, local to the UK, but we do post a lot of research on there and a bit about our projects. Particularly, I would love to hear from Australian organisations that also focus on families. I would love to. I'm connected with some in, in America and various other places. There's very few organisations that focus really on the family structure and how we nudge behavior outside outdoorclassroomday.com.au in australia or just search outdoor classroom day go on the outdoorclassroomday.com as well for that global yeah. overview is really inspiring yeah we've got on the on there we've got um some re a research report called muddy hands and another one yes. called playtime matters yep. they've both got very long uh reading lists at the back um anybody wants to know more get in touch with us through facebook through twitter through instagram um linkedin all the usual places amazing um, we'd love to connect amazing amazing uh, and i set the bar high at the start of this podcast um, and talked it up and you've delivered tenfold on that, Kath. So I hugely appreciate I know. it. I'm and, hiding. Like, I'm British. Uh, Can you stop yeah, it, please? We don't take compliments. How dare you? It's practically an insult. And it's, it's, it's standing on the shoulders of giants. Seriously, Lucas. It's like um, 
there's some amazing people out there all working super hard at every uh, at every level. I mean, outdoor classroom day exists because of the great teachers that tell other teachers about yeah. getting outdoors. Outdoor people exist because families tell other families, actually, you know, let's just go out for a walk. Yeah. Um, we're all working in a community here. So it's great to connect to you guys. And um, I hope to work with you much more in the future. Say Absolutely. hi to Hayano from me. I will definitely. And, um, a takeaway we'll wrap up with now is that act local, think global, and that's all you need to do. That's where the action happens. That's where you're going to make the biggest difference in your community. So thank you so much again, Kath. You're amazing. <laughs> thank you, Lucas. Thank you so much for joining us on another worthy podcast and play it forward. Um, We've referenced so much data. That's all going to be in the show notes where you can find Kath's amazing work, Outdoor Classroom Day. Go to the show notes and thank you for joining us. And I look forward for you joining us again for the next podcast. We've got some amazing guests coming up. So thanks so much and we look forward to joining you next time.